0: Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men.
1: Hello, today we have Sonia interviewing John about textual criticism. This is the field of study through which we can know the original text of the New Testament. We are continuing from the previous episode today. Now, second thing to note here is that the rules presuppose that scribes who believed the Bible was the Word of God nevertheless took it upon themselves to freely change it, to fix supposed original errors and problems or just to add some more stuff to make it better.
2: Well, could, could it be argued that the scribes didn't think they're actually changing the Bible, but they might have thought that there's an error in their exemplar and they're trying to fix it?
1: That's still taking upon themselves to change it because this is what, what they see is what they see. As a Christian, you know, there are passages in the Bible that are problematic or seem problematic that we have to explain in exegete, but we would never dream of actually changing the text to get rid of what we think is a potential problem. The, the bears in Second Kings chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, the, the two bears that come out of the woods and maul 42 youths that are mocking Elisha, and skeptics love to pick on this and show him more all the Bible is to have such a story. We don't change the story. We don't think, well, yeah, that's an embarrassing story. Why don't we just get rid of it and change it somehow? Why don't we change mauled to chaste? Right? But we wouldn't dream of that because we believe it's the word of God. But this is the rule. And they don't say that scribes did it only to fix errors. As the, we looked at that longer part in the the lord's prayer that's not an error they just hey this sounds good let's put it in so they and, and this is crucial to understand the one linchpin of textual criticism is that scribes took it upon themselves to change holy writ if that presupposition is wrong then the entire edifice crumbles And so we will get into more details on that as we move along. The third thing to notice is that these rules, these canons that Griesbach put forth, did not come about from actual study of scribal habits. He did not offer proof of any sort, actual proof, empirical proof, just it made sense. The rules were proclaimed to be true, they're never proven, and yet they are followed to this day even by evangelical textual critics. And another thing to note then is that because of these rules, variants that introduce an error or make the Bible look bad are taken to be the original readings regardless of how few manuscripts they're in. Regardless of whether those manuscripts are a good quality or not, because... You would think quality of the manuscripts is something that we should really look into carefully when we're assessing how reliable a manuscript should be taken. They never look at that. That's that just completely overlooked. The next development then came around the middle of the 19th century, when two old manuscripts of the Bible came to light. One was found at a monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery, at Mount Sinai, and it came to be called Codex Sinaiticus. Codex means it's in a book form rather than a scroll form. This was called Codex Sinaiticus. It was found by Lobigod Friedrich Constantine von Tischendorf. After a number of years, he managed to acquire it and it ended up in the British Museum. And that was the in around the middle of the... 19th century. And around the same time, the Vatican revealed that they also had an old manuscript of the Bible that was called Codex Vaticanus. Both of these date to the middle or so of the 4th century AD. Uh, Sinaiticus is thought to be a little bit older, Vaticanus a little bit younger. The oldest manuscript that of the Bible at the time was Codex Alexandrinus, which dates to about the year 400, so a little bit more recent. But now these two were found, and they were the oldest ones that were known to exist at that time. What was particularly noteworthy, what liberal scholars love most about these two manuscripts, is that they're both suspiciously, missing the last 12 verses of the gospel according to Mark. If you look in these manuscripts, Mark ends at verse 8 about the women fleeing from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid.
2: what, What do you mean by suspiciously missing them?
1: Suspiciously means there's some question about their omission. If we look, for example, at Codex Vaticanus, we look at how it's written, There are three columns of writing on every sheet of parchment. And the scribe would write first column, then the second column, then the third column. They move to the top of the next column. And when he reached the end of a book, wherever he was in the column, he would move right to the top of the next column and start the next book. And this is something that is maintained throughout the entire New Testament with one exception, and that exception is the end of the Gospel according to Mark. He reaches chapter 16, verse 8, writes that down, and then instead of jumping to the top of the next column, he leaves an entire blank column and starts Luke after that. The question is raised, then why did the scribe leave an entire blank column, plus whatever was left in his column, Why did he leave that blank space here and only here in the entire manuscript? And the only reasonable explanation that's ever been advanced is that he knew Mark doesn't actually end there. The exemplar he was using, that is the manuscript he was copying, was missing the the end of it. Perhaps that page had gotten ripped off. It was the last page of the codex and it got lost somehow. But the scribe apparently knew that Mark doesn't actually end at verse 8, and he left enough room to have the rest of Mark added, but it was never done. In the case of Sinaiticus, what's suspicious there is that that group of sheets that include the, the end of the Gospel according to Mark was actually removed, sometimes subsequent to the original copying, and rewritten and replaced. So we don't actually have the end of Mark in the original manuscript of Codex Sinaiticus. We have what was added later. And here, it's interesting when you look at the end of Mark, the scribe is very consistent in how he writes throughout the manuscript in terms of number of letters per line, number of lines per column, inch, and so on. And again, there's one deviation And this comes at the end of the gospel according to Mark, where you can see that as the scribe is moving down the page, he starts spreading out the letters, making them wider and making them larger. So that he manages then to get the last couple of lines into the next column and then puts a little design there to end it at 16.8. So
2: you think the last 12 verses were removed from that manuscript on purpose?
1: Well, it sure looks that way. Again, why does he change the size of his font? It looks like he wants to make sure he doesn't end up with an empty column there. And again, no, no other good explanation has ever been given... But the best we can say here, under any circumstance, is that, yes, Codex Sinaiticus, as we have it now, is missing the last 12 verses of Mark, but we don't have the original ending of Mark in Codex Sinaiticus, so we don't really know.
2: So, is this an example of a scribe deliberately altering the text? Well, I don't
1: know if it was deliberately altering the text. As I said, in the case of Vaticanus, it seems the most reasonable thing is that his exemplar didn't have the last 12 verses. So it's not that it's deliberately altering it. He he knew that there was more to come, but he didn't have access to it, so he couldn't put it in there. But what that would mean is you would have a small number of copies with the last 12 verses missing. Okay,
2: but what about the one where the scribes suddenly had bigger font, the one where it's removed? Well, I'm getting to that.
1: Vaticanus, perhaps Vaticanus was copied. And whoever used Vaticanus as an exemplar would be missing the last 12 verses of Mark, because it's not in Vaticanus. So there would be a small number of copies that way. And then perhaps the scribe of Sinaiticus would have included the last 12 verses, but a a later scholar there, who'd seen copies missing the last 12 verses, thought that this was not part of the original. And so he rewrote it, trying to recapture the original. So it wasn't a deliberate alteration in the sense of changing what he thought was sacred writ. It would have been a deliberate attempt to excise something that he thought was not sacred writ.
2: Do you really think it could have happened that the mistake of missing the last 12 verses could have gotten into so many manuscripts that such a person would actually have thought they were inauthentic and removed them from Sinaiticus.
1: It's possible that in this particular geographic location it did happen because there are church fathers who comment on the fact that there are a number of manuscripts missing it in their local area. So yes, it's it's possible that it would happen, but really it would take only one to do that, only one to find that an exemplar with it missing and assuming therefore, that that was not authentic.
2: Because books were so rare in those days?
1: Well, they tended to be rare. Scribes copying the Bible might have had access to a number of them, but again, they would have to make a call. And as I said, in in certain geographic locations, particularly around Alexandria and that Egyptian part of the church, you might have had a proliferation of copies missing it. Right now, we have only these two missing it. If you look in the critical apparatus of critical New Testament texts. These are ones where they list the what's the variant exists in which manuscript. Older ones will list four of them. One of them has been taken off the list because they, they see that in this particular one, the last page of Mark is actually missing. And there's marks on the previous page indicating that Mark is not finished here. They know there's more coming. So that's not really a witness against the last 12 verses. And the other one, and these, these are late ones from the 12th century, I think. The other one is a commentary where uh, a scholar was writing a line of Mark and then writing his commentary notes and then writing another part of Mark and writing his commentary notes. So here it goes up to 16.8, but again, we don't have the whole thing. So there's no reason to think that he didn't write more after that. So there's really only two where it's missing, and it's these two where, where the omission is rather suspicious. Now, scholars will have other reasons for trying to challenge these last 12 verses, and sometime we'll do a program on looking at all of the arguments. But the fact is, liberal scholars love this because it allows them to get rid of the resurrection. allows them to get, a, get rid of the resurrection if you combine this fact that these 12 verses are missing in these two manuscripts. If you combine that with a few other assumptions you can go a long way towards removing the resurrection. And again, we'll talk more in detail about this in another program. But basically, you have to insist that these two manuscripts are the most reliable ones. You have to insist that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are the most reliable New Testament manuscripts. The excuse was that while they're the oldest, we should trust them the most. Combine that with the idea of literary dependence.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you.